All right. It's been a little while. It's been a little while since we've done this, but we have a a kind of mission statement here in Hamilton Reformed, a, a direction by which we operate. And I want to see if you remember. Remember it was connecting people. You can say it with me. Connecting people to God's family, word, and way of life. It's kind of amazing how that kind of starts to come back in, right? You, you start to recall it again. Last year, we took a few weeks to look at each part of that. Connecting people to God's family was one week. The word was the next week, and way of life was the third week. That's our mission statement. This year here, as we launch into this busy period, we are going to look at another component of who we are. We have four core values. A lot of work was done on this back in 2020, and of course, COVID really messed things up, but we have four core values, and chances are you might not recall those as well. It was great work, but is there anybody who wants to just pop up their hand real quick and say, I know all four of them without cheating? Yeah, that's what I thought. Don't feel bad. I had to look it up too. Had to go to our website, no less, to find them. They make sense when we look at them. This church is highly relational. We get along very well with one another, and we encourage one another. We support one another. The number of times that I see you at other events supporting a fellow church member, it's amazing. The ways in which you pass cards and notes on to one another when someone's down or discouraged or hurting or recovering, all the different ways in which this church family truly operates as a family. The core values make sense. Generosity. See it all the time. Compassion. I had a fly that wanted to be part of the family. It's generosity, compassion, hospitality, how much we welcome one another. It's wonderful. And then a fourth one, faith. Now, each of those core values has a few more words around them. So, for example, today we're going to talk about faith, and it's intentional faith development intentional faith development. It's not just faith development, not just growing faith, but it's intentional. It's purposeful. And we're going to look at two different scripture passages that help us think about what it is to be intentional in faith development, both corporately as a people, but also individually. Two different passages. And like many of the core values we'll do over the next these four weeks, we'll probably be bouncing around the church in Antioch, which was north of Jerusalem a few hundred miles. Um, Antioch still exists today, but uh, it was a place in which the church established itself and started to formulate the Christian faith in many ways. Our first reading is going to come from the book of Acts, 
And it's going to talk about just the start of the formation of that church in Antioch. And that formation comes out of persecution. It comes out of uh, the Jews really cracking down on their fellow brother and sister Jews who've come to believe the Messiah has come. They see this as a falsehood, and so they're starting to crack down on that. Paul, or actually Saul himself, was involved and was there and oversaw the stoning of a man named Stephen. And then Saul later went with letters in hand on his way to Antioch. It's a, or it's a long, or Damascus, and it's a long story, but he was involved in that early persecution. But then Jesus spoke to him. His heart was changed, but then he was a man without, without a country. He couldn't be with his own people, the Jews, and he couldn't be with the Christians. No one trusted him, as I said last week, and he was sent off kind of into hiding. We pick up here in Acts chapter 11, starting at the 19th verse. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some, some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is the non-Jews, or what's often referred to as the Gentiles who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. He was kind of sent to check things out See what's going on. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's a few hundred miles further north. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the word of the Lord. Almighty God, may you bless to us your word. May our ears and our hearts be open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, faith development, intentional faith development. We see that here in this story that starts with persecution and then expands beyond the Jews that suddenly have come to know the Messiah. It turns out there are now non-Jews, Hellenists, Greeks, um, Gentiles, people that are not of the Jewish fold who are now coming to believe that Jesus is Lord. And they're coming to believe that because they've been told it. It's no longer being told in the in-house circle of the family of Jews. It's being spread out and others are coming to believe. 
The church, honestly, at the start, really didn't know what to do with this phenomenon. They just didn't know how to handle it. But the first thing they did, like we all do when something's new, is they sent out exploration. And they sent Barnabas out to go figure out what's going on. And Barnabas is, he gets there and he's just overwhelmed with God's grace. That God's grace is not just for the Jews, but that it's been poured out to all people. He's amazed. But this is new territory. The faith is now spreading, and the way it's spreading is new. And so what to do is really the question that Barnabas is presented with, and it speaks directly into our intentional faith development as a core value. Because Barnabas does two things. Two things. The first, the very first thing he does is he kind of puts down an anchor. You know what an anchor is. It kind of puts you solidly in one place. If you're out in a boat and you put out an anchor, you put out an anchor good enough to keep the boat there on the water. Even though the water will move you all around, you're firmly established. I put on my Hope anchor socks today just to make the point, okay? An anchor, it's to make it firm. The first thing Barnabas does is he puts down an anchor for them. You've got all these people who've come to believe that Jesus is Lord, but now what? And so as Barnabas thinks, the first thing he thinks is, okay, wait a minute, we've got to solidly make sure that there's an anchor here, that they stay put. And he says two things. He has them remain faithful, and he has them with steadfast purpose. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That remain faithful, um, again, translators are always struggling to bring it into our language, but it really has to do with establishing a firm point. It's kind of like when you say to your kid, stay there, stay put. But it's not only stay put, it's stay put for an extended duration. Have you ever had to uh, work with your, your animal, like your dog or something, and say, sit, sit, and then walk away? What do they do when you start to walk away? They get up and follow you, right? This is a, this is a type of remaining faithful that is happening here is stay put, don't move. Stay there. How many of us have done that in the store where we say, you know, stay right here, I'll be right back. But you take longer than you expect, and the next thing you know when you come back, they're not there. And then you call one another on the cell phone nowadays, or you text one another, you're over here, okay, okay, I'll go there. And then you go to where they are, and they're not where they said they would be. No one is staying put. And life right now kind of feels that way, doesn't it, sometimes? No one is staying put. Up used to be up, down used to be down, black used to be black, white used to be white, on, off, you know. Now uh, we even struggle to you know what terms to use in our basic language. No one is staying put. Barnabas is saying, stay put and do so for an extended period. And what I want you to stay put is, I want you to stay put in the Lord Jesus. I just want you to hold on to, he's telling them, these early believers, I just want you to hold on to Jesus that you believe into. I don't want you letting go of that. 
as you still see the other religions that are around you, as others start to tell you what they think it means, I just want you to hold true to the fact that Jesus is Lord and Jesus has come to save you from your sins. Just hold on to that. And why does he do that? Because he knows that he's going to be gone for a while. He wants them to remain faithful. He wants them to have steadfast purpose. And what that steadfast purpose is, it speaks, I mean, you'd know the word right away. If I gave it the word to you in Greek, you'd be right there. Cardio, what does that sound like? The heart. It's not just being firm as an anchor in one place. It's the heart, the core of who we are, knowing why. Our heart is what keeps us there. Keep your heart in Jesus. Don't just do it because someone told you to. Don't just do it because you grew up in the church and that's the way we always did things. Your heart has to fully be there. We stay put. We stay anchored when our heart is involved. It is not easy for us to leave where our heart really is. Well, there's times where we can get distracted, but we stay with where our heart is. And Barnabas, is the first thing he's doing is saying, put your heart completely in Jesus and stay put. I know everything's confusing right now. You've come to believe that Jesus is Lord. He's your Savior, that he's Lord of all, that he's been giving you new life. And, but don't get confused by everything else. Just stay with that simple truth. That's the first thing. Barnabas did. And it's very appropriate for us when we talk about intentional faith development. Sometimes we have to have a fixed point upon which to be fixed as we learn everything else. A teacher will tell you this all the time. You've got to start from a base point and then build there. You can't know everything right at the start. It doesn't work that way. It never has. You have to start with the base and build from there. But while you build from there, you've got to stay there. I, I love, because I like math, I, I like the old uh, cartoon where the student is raising the hand regarding uh, algebra, and, and the caption says, it, there's on the board, it says X equals three. And the caption is, the student says, but teacher, yesterday you said X equals two. And for those who got to algebra, you know that X changes. Things change around us, but we need to stay firm as we build from there. I used to work with seminary students, helping them uh, learn how to become pastors. And one of the things I would do early on is introduce them to the idea of doing a children's message, which scares most of us, right? The idea of teaching children and teaching them something about the Bible. But you may not know this, Children's messages are absolutely full of heresy. What do I mean? They're full of all sorts of things that aren't true about God, but yet we say them. And that's not because we're doing anything wrong, but because we're talking to children. And we've got to start with simple concepts that we build from, that we start to build the nuances on. We have to say broad subjects in broad ways and then later refine. Barnabas is saying, stay put, stay on this. We will develop that. In our faith development, it's the same thing. We have to start somewhere, and we have to hold on 
as it starts to expand and grow. The second thing he does is he looks at the situation and he's overwhelmed. Maybe he, if he were here today, he wouldn't say, well, I wasn't overwhelmed. But it's clear that he knows he needs help. And it's at this point that he journeys off for a significant distance. And he goes and retrieves this character, Saul, who was once a Pharisee and persecuting the church. He goes and he gets Saul and he brings Saul back because who better to teach these people than someone who is deeply steeped in what the faith is, but what it now means to have Jesus as the Messiah. In intentional faith development, we have to pay attention as a core value to the idea that it needs to be intentional. We can no more come into church on a Sunday morning repetitively and sit here in the pew or do whatever and think that our faith will grow just by being here. That's as good as when I used to lay my head on my math book at night in college thinking that maybe the calculus would finally make sense when I woke up in the morning. Didn't work, by the way. It gave me a headache. It's the same as just because you're in the garage doesn't make you a car. Intentional faith development means that we need to be purposeful about seeking out someone else who can teach, guide, instruct, and help us. There's none of us who have fully arrived. There's someone who always knows something more or has a potential answer or at least a pondering or a wondering about the things we're struggling with. We're wondering about how does that work? Because the Christian faith is full of paradoxes. God is one God, but yet three persons. Jesus Christ is fully human and yet fully divine. How do we reconcile those things? And the paradoxes go on. There are truths of our faith that are worth digging deeper into. And what do they mean? And what do they say about what we believe? So Barnabas in his work with the church in Antioch, does two things. He first tells them, stay put, don't move, hold fast to Jesus. And then he goes and he gets a resource, namely Saul, to help come. And now that Saul arrives, things aren't all just hunky-dory, everything's all better. No, the scriptures tell us that they, they work together on them for a year. And through that repetitive working and teaching, that church is where people first came to be called Christians. Because they started out being exhorted to stay fully in Jesus, and that over that time of teaching and learning, they came to be ones who followed Christ. All right. That's our first big picture. That's our first snapshot. You know, that's, that's the opening thing we need to pay attention to in our faith development, that we get a picture early on in the early church at the early formations as the gospel started to spread, as the good news of Jesus Christ started to spread outside of the fold, that's our initial picture of what it looked like. And like I said, in the coming weeks, we'll return to Antioch for other reasons as well. 
because so much is happening in, in that church as it kind of becomes this catalyst for the Christian faith to take off. But that's our opening picture. That's like when we open a book and we start to read the very first words or the first chapter. You know, there's well-known books out there. You know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That book, it was written by Charles Dickens. It's the tale of two cities. Or I don't think I usually get this one exactly right, but it's a truth mutually acknowledged that a man with a large fortune must be in want of a wife. I don't usually get that exactly right, but it's the opening words to Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen's book, which is pretty much the second most read book outside of the Bible. If you haven't read it yet, now you know you need to join the rest of us. This is the opening of the church, what's happening. This is the initial picture, but there's a second picture that we're going to look at this morning in our intentional faith development. This is where we kind of go to the end of the book, where we read some of the conclusions and see how everything starts to be wrapped up, or to put it differently, this is how we see how well did this initial stuff hold, and what does it look like later, years later, a decade or more, two decades, three decades, what does it look like now? In particular, Saul, who was brought out of exile to do this teaching, Saul, who we know as Paul, what does it look like at the end of his life? What is he now doing about faith development? What does that intentional faith development look like? And that's the second part of what we have to read this morning. We're going to now read from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is a letter that Paul writes to his co-worker Timothy. And it's a letter most scholars believe probably is his final letter. This is a time in which he's in jail in Rome, and it's no longer kind of a house arrest. We believe that Paul was arrested in Rome probably more than once, and certainly at this point, even if it was one continuous, it's no longer house arrest. He's now bound in chains. Circumstances have changed, and everything is indicating that Paul is coming to the end of his life. And I don't know about you, but when I have the privilege to sit with someone who knows that they're in their final days and they're still able to communicate and talk and share about what was important in life, what's of real value, that's when I'm really listening. You know what I'm saying? When you come across someone who really knows what they're talking about, when you come across someone in their final days who really is looking back and summarizing it up, what was of value, what wasn't, I'm listening. And that's where we are with Paul today, writing to Timothy, his co-worker. And just for our mind, I just want to reset us a little bit. Timothy, so often we look at Timothy as maybe someone who's a, a little... Um, new at this, uh, maybe a little weak in the knees in ministry, uh, still has a lot to learn. Uh, you know, that's a good image, and we get that image because of uh, passages like 1 Timothy 4.12, where Paul says to him in the previous letter, he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. That's very specific in context. It's important. But Timothy was a co-worker of Paul who was very strong and very capable. Timothy is the one that Paul writes about. I don't have anyone else like him. 
Timothy is the ambassador that Paul would send back to Ephesus and back to Corinth and other places to help clean things up and make sure things are going well. Matter of fact, this letter is probably written to Timothy in Ephesus as he's trying to reorganize and re-get the church on the right path. Timothy was Paul's, probably Paul's secondhand man in many ways. So when Paul writes to him, he's writing to Timothy probably about things Timothy already knows. But you know how you can know something, but you both understand something. But we're going to just be clear to make sure you really understand this is what we're about. It's in that spirit I want you to hear Paul's writing to Timothy. And one last word before I read. Just before what we're about to read, Paul looks back on those last few decades of following Christ. And he looks back upon the real world that we live in. And he speaks to all the people that are living very different lives than the lives that Christians are called to live. Destructive lives, lives that are lived for themselves, and lives that are often very difficult or hard on Christians. And so what we're about to read is Paul's response to all of that and who we're called to be. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, starting there, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all, them all, the Lord rescued me. Again, hear the mind of someone sharing, looking back. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have, have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Look at what Paul is doing here. Where Barnabas, way back in Antioch, started out by putting an anchor in place around Jesus and then going and getting help to teach, Paul now is sharing at the end of his life with his fellow co-worker, Timothy, as he's reworking the situation in Ephesus. And if Ephesus was in a major Roman port, Major Roman city is where one of the seven wonders of the world was, the Temple of Artemis. 
a major city, and, and Timothy's been sent there to work, and, and Paul says, hey, look, in your faith development, as you work with others, remember this, that we're not like other people. We're not living as the world lives. And then he lays himself, Paul lays himself down as an example. Some look at Paul and they read his readings and think he's full of pride. I don't think Paul is full of pride in the way we often think. Rather, Paul recognizes that his life had to be an example that taught alongside of Scripture. And it was very much a practical understanding of the day in a way that others would have read this and not read pride at all. You know, rabbis, rabbis would teach their students, not just teach them the scrolls and the, the Hebrew Bible, but would also have their students follow them on paths. Let's take a road trip. Let's take a field trip. And they would have their students follow them in just such a way, such that even the way they would approach a learning would be through the eyes of the rabbi. It made sense to follow someone who taught you how to be. We do this even today. We have mentors and we apprentice people. We have people we learn from. Teachers in school. What do you do? As a, you, you don't just go in and suddenly teach. You go in as a student teacher and you work alongside a seasoned teacher. Paul is reminding Timothy, look, if you're struggling at any point, remember what I showed you. My teachings, the way I taught, my conduct, my, my way of life, the way I, I just approached life. Keep that in mind. Keep in mind the experience of the one who taught you. You know, I was thinking this morning, and this was not originally part of what I had to share with you today, but I was just thinking this morning about the church I grew up in and how I went to Sunday school and I was sent there by my parents. But I was a young boy and I'd rather play out on the playground. And I still remember Ken and Ruth Kike. When I tell you they were old, they were old. Honestly, I didn't understand why he didn't walk with a staff. They epitomized the idea of what Abraham and Sarah must have been in my mind. They were so old. Their hair was whiter than white. Well, Ruth's wasn't. She kept dyeing it. But the white kept breaking through. But their faces were so, from a young face, mind, their faces were just so incredibly wrinkled. And they were teaching our Sunday school class. <laughs> we might have been second grade, third grade. I mean, we were all about play. They greet us as we come in the classroom and we see that table and the chairs and have to sit down and, oh my goodness, how boring is this going to be with these people that are older than our grandparents. Probably our, they're probably our grandparents' grandparents. I mean, they were old. And you know what? They looked at us young boys 
And they didn't yell at us to say, seated in the chair, don't move, stop wiggling, all. none of that. Everything was taught to us with an incredible smile. We'd come in one day and they'd say, you know what? We're not going to sit in the chairs today. We're going to learn underneath the table. We're going to build a fort first. And they'd get blankets out and we'd cover the table and put the chairs up against the table and we'd be all snug underneath, under the table. And they must have been 80, 90 years old on the floor, under the table, teaching us wiggly kids. I still remember them because what they taught me was the love of Jesus. I might not remember a particular lesson, but they exemplified what Paul was saying. My way of life. I love you. I want you to know how much I love you, and I love you because of Jesus Christ, what the scriptures have taught us. Paul starts by saying, use me as an example if it helps. In intentional faith development, remember that you also are an example. And then don't forget that as you look through my way of life, you're going to also see parts of my life that were not pleasing. I was persecuted. And the truth of the matter is, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you will be too. None of us can escape that. That persecution may look different for each of us in different ways. We can definitely say true persecution is when someone is truly being beaten and, and physically and their life is in danger. But the truth of the matter is persecution also happens socially. When we know standing up for our faith means that others will treat us differently or no longer allow us in the social circles in the same way. I promise you, I understand. I'm a minister of the word of Jesus Christ. When I go to sit down at a table at a large event and there's all sorts of great jokes and we're laughing and fun, I hate it when we get to that question when they finally say, and what do you do? I'm a minister. Oh, and I never hear another good joke. On an airplane, I sit down, and, and the person next to me, you know, talkative, and what do you do? I'm a minister. And one of two things happens. Either they now feel like they have their own personal counselor for the next hour and a half, or they go quiet. I get it. Paul is saying that is part of our journey. As you look at what it is to follow Jesus Christ, it's going to be part of our faith development is recognizing this is not a free, great trip. This is going to be hard. But other ways, in other places in Scripture, we hear that our faith grows stronger through persecution, through difficulties. We have to test out what we really believe. Our young people, we send them off to college or send them into the world, and it's time for them to embrace the faith as their own, not as their parents' faith, because it's tough. And you need to decide whether your heart is really there. But the intentional faith development that Paul goes on to is not using himself ultimately as the final example. He moves and shifts to Scripture. And I'm kind of wrapping up quicker here than I expected, but I want to make these points. He starts out by first saying, you got to remember that all Scripture 
is God-breathed. That's a cool phrase. It's the only place it appears in all the Bible. God-breathed. It kind of looks like Paul made the word up. He didn't. A philosopher or two uses it as well, but it's a rare word, and it means this. Why not say, you know, God-inspired or God-directed? or He says God-breathed, and he says so with this purpose. In the very beginning, in the creation, when God makes Adam, he breathes life into him. It's not the formation of the human that is, is the final creation. It's the breathing in of life. Ruach, that word for spirit, the Hebrew word for spirit, is also the word for wind and breath. All Scripture is God-breathed, meaning that all Scripture brings life. Not just God-inspired, God-directed. All Scripture brings the life that only God can give. And then he goes on to say, hey, Scripture is good for teaching. It teaches us. We're always growing, all of us. There's never an end to that growing. It teaches us. And then it's got this word reproof. It's not like we use that word a lot. But it basically means that Scripture Well, it pulls back the curtain. It totally reveals. The quickest word to say is it exposes. Scripture has a way of exposing us. Anything we think we can hide behind, it just totally exposes us. And then next, it corrects us. The moment we discover sometimes our own sins, our own struggles are hidden from ourselves. We deceive ourselves. But the moment that Scripture reveals it, it then doesn't just leave us revealed, exposed. It gives us correction. I love to coach. And you know why I like to coach? Because I like seeing in any individual what little adjustments can be made to help them be better at the sport they're playing. I love that. In the same way, I think a teacher teaches not just to help because they like teaching math or some other subject. They like seeing the light bulb go on in the child as they move from this place to now a place of more knowledge and more ability and capableness. That just excites you. And in the same way as a coach, I love doing that because you move a person to the next place. The scriptures move us off of where we were. It corrects us. It gives us a path forward and ultimately it trains us for what it means to be right with God it puts us on the right training regimen any sport you play if you start practicing just when that season starts you're already behind if you come into a difficult circumstance in your faith journey and you haven't done any preparation, you're already behind and you know it. The work starts now. And Paul shares all this because he says in the end that the man of God, and what it means there is the man and woman of God, it's anthropos. It's the same way you and I used to a couple decades ago use the word man to mean all humanity. 
that the man of God, the humanity of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, we have a place we're going and arriving. And Scripture helps us get there. Intentional faith development is growing in our faith with purpose. And so I encourage you as this new season of study begins to take advantage. Maybe your time and schedule doesn't work to attend one of the items that are available. But if it does, take a risk. Maybe you don't have to go every week or every time, but just push yourself. Or maybe there's a Bible study going on somewhere that you thought, maybe I'll do that at some point. Now's the time. Or maybe it's your personal devotions or Bible time. Now's the time to pick it up again. Now's the time to grow in our faith development. And I'll wrap all this up with this piece. A week or two ago, we were asking for a person to teach the second and third graders. God answered prayer. Intentional faith development is already underway as someone has stepped up to try it out. So let's be in prayer for that person and everyone else who's working with our kids and working with us, because I think we're probably the hardest kids. Let's grow in Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, may you bless us in your word. May you help us to grow alongside of you. And may you guide us as we dig deeper into this core value of ours to be intentional about our faith development. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours this day and forevermore. Amen.